This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. Hope you had a great Mother's Day weekend. This is Brian Kilmeade. This hour, we're going to talk to Britt Hume, okay, in a matter of minutes. And then Holman Jenkins, a member of the editorial board of this place called the Wall Street Journal, in our very building here on 48th and 6th. Uh, and he's going to be weighing in on uh, what's going on with the dorm report, as well as uh, how Russia could be on the threshold of losing in Ukraine. Most of the world's fingers crossed that that is indeed the case. Everyone's tired of the bullying, looking the other way, giving them, uh, giving the crazy guy a special dispensation. Now he's getting confronted with a flat-out loss. We'll tell you what happened hours ago at his big victory parade. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. They have nothing to celebrate tomorrow. They have uh, not succeeded in defeating the Ukrainians. They've not succeeded in dividing NATO. They have only succeeded in isolating themselves internationally. Uh, you know, I can argue with the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. Uh, there we go. Putin's annual co- uh, special speech. Pure fiction as he spouts phony reasons for invading Ukraine while his troops struggle to even record success in the east and south after being humiliated in the north while suffering high-profile losses. We'll bring you the latest. Number two. For some truckers, diesel prices are becoming unbearable. This independent trucker says he's losing more money on the road. You know, the price is skyrocketing and uh, we still don't get good prices, you know, for the loads. If, if it goes any higher than this and prices for the loads is not coming up, then... Maybe we just we'll, we'll call it a Wow. Uh, unbelievable, right? That is uh, a, a trucker talking about his life now. But uh, President Biden continues to blame inflation on the Putin price hike. He and the G7 leaders commit to a ban or a phase out of Russian oil exports. This is diesel gas prices in the U.S., which truckers run on, goes up a all-time high. And let's not forget about the shortage on baby formula and staples of society. Way to go, Joe. Number one. I'm unapologetically pro-life. I'm also unapologetically against mob rule. And the left has been attempting to intimidate the court with mob rule. The left has been attempting to intimidate the court by threatening to pack it, by threatening violence. Now we're seeing the violence. Yeah, the draft opinion that has rocked American politics spilled into churches and in front of the homes of Supreme Court justices. The issue, the reality, and the party positions. Plus, will will we ever learn who the leaker was? Will we ever get that identity? And what will it mean for this story? Let's bring in Britt Hume. Britt, welcome back. Thanks, Brian. Nice to talk to you. Uh, Well, uh, always great to talk to you to put in perspective what's going on. Uh, First off, a little out of order. The big victory speech day did not have any threat of nuclear war in it. Uh, just some fiction about Nazis, and they had to invade Ukraine because they had nuclear weapons. Are you surprised if Vladimir Putin didn't try to redraw the battle lines or do something substantial? Yeah, I am. 
I'm a little bit surprised. I thought it was a pretty tame speech from what we know of it so far, and it doesn't look like um, the kind of threats that he seemed to have been issuing was were repeated. So that's that's probably good news. It's great news uh, overall. As they know, they they're trying to take Kirasan. And they're they're already changing the street signs and appointing their own mayor, trying to do the same thing with Mariupol. Do you get the sense they're going to try to see what they got consolidated, claim a victory, and get out? Well, it, I, I, that may be the only option open to to them at the way, the way things are going. There, this advance that was much touted, you know, from that part of the, the of the country which they had previously occupied. Um, you know, they were supposed to regroup and advance, and they may have advanced a little, but they're losing ground up to the north. Um, it looks like this invasion, for the moment at least, isn't going anywhere. And that being the case, uh, it's, I guess it's possible Putin will decide to take what he can, uh, save as much face as he can, and, and get out of there, because they're taking hideous losses. They've lost of military equipment, loss of lives. It's, this has been a total calamity in, a mili- in military terms uh, for Putin and his regime. Think about it, Brad. I mean, you commented on this along the way. In 2008, they go run through Georgia. They stay. Just a few sanctions. No big deal. They just uh, plow through and just waltz into uh, Crimea and take a little bit more of that region with the so-called Russian separatists. is really no problem. Go into Syria. Make sure that Assad stays in power. Okay, no problem. We're killing innocent people. Really no backlash. Why would they think this would be any different? Well, they certainly missed the boat on, uh, as did much of the world, on what had happened inside Ukraine since that Crimea invasion you just mentioned, Brian. The, uh, the Ukrainians got serious about their defense. They got serious about their military. Uh, they got help from the West. Uh, they did a good job of training. And they were much better prepared for this than I think anybody had imagined. And, um, you know, even in this country where, you know, our military uh, analysts and experts all thought that uh, there was a distinct possibility that that the Russians would have Kiev in a matter of days when this all started. Um, Now it looks like they've given up entirely on getting Kiev, at least in any near-term time frame, if not not forever. So a lot of people misjudge Ukraine, Vladimir Putin chief among them. So I I want you to hear what Lindsey Graham told Brett this week on Fox News Sunday, because uh, people, because how this ends is key, obviously. You want to make sure he just can't regroup in five years, see his mistakes, build better tanks, get more people, use some money, China money, and then come back and do it what he would think would be right. So this is what Senator Lindsey Graham said. Cut 28. So you're saying that that's how this ends, that Putin is removed. Uh, Is there any way? There's no off-ramp. There is no off-ramp. No off-ramp. So let me tell you why there's no off-ramp. The Ukrainians are not going to give the East to Putin uh, to, to stop the war. They're going to fight for every inch of their territory. If we push the Ukrainians to give up half the country, then Putin wins. If we back off prosecuting Putin as a war criminal, all the laws on the books become a joke. If we don't get this right, China will certainly invade Taiwan. There is no off-ramp in this war. Somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose. That's how I feel uh, that we should let them decide when it ends. Do you think they will have the decision? And do you agree with Lindsey Graham, Brett Hume? I think Lindsey Graham's talk sounds a little reckless to me. Um, ask yourself this question, or two questions, Brian. One of them is, what are the vital U.S. national security interests in Ukraine? You start thinking about it, it's pretty hard to identify them. Yes, we all are kind of emotionally invested in this brave people and the way they fought back and so on. Um, and, the, and we've been inspired by the leadership that their president, from whom not much was expected, have shown. Um, 
but our vital national security interests in Ukraine pretty hard to identify. Secondly, what would be the downside if his back is to the wall and defeat is on the way for for Vladimir Putin to use a tactical nuclear weapon? What would be the downside? You think about it for a minute. Hard to say. So I, you know, the idea that we want to push him as far as we can. Um, obviously, the, the Ukrainians have the final say in this. Um, but the idea that there's going to be some complete Russian defeat, we all might want that. But Putin has a say in this, and he does have nuclear weapons. And so this gets dangerous. A couple of things. Uh, in your second point, uh, the using a tactical nuke, what would he do? The desperation has to be thought out. But I do think it's in our national interest, and here's why. If you see what Russia has done in the Middle East, destabilizing it even further, now they inserted themselves in during the Obama administration and really presented another problem. You see what they're doing in Venezuela in the south, and you think that if they could be brought down to size, to be exposed to what they are, being let them know that there's no, there's, uh, there's no upside to invading even your neighbors, let alone in our neighborhood— I think there's a huge upside there and letting everybody know that Vladimir Putin is not this big ogre and can be cut down to size, but most importantly, by his own people. So uh, saying there's got to be regime change is a problem. I think that objective of cutting him down to size has already been achieved. Uh, This is even now, this is an outcome that nobody imagined, at least almost nobody imagined. Um, And Vladimir Putin looks like a much smaller figure on the world stage today than he does now. And the idea that that, uh, it it takes a complete defeat uh, of Russia to send the word, send warning to to Beijing uh, that uh, they don't want to attack another porcupine the way Putin did in Ukraine. Uh, Look, Taiwan is, Taiwan is, you know, if there was an all-out war, um, invasion by China of Taiwan, it's fair to anticipate that the Chinese could pull it off. But at what cost? And, and, the, and what's happened with Putin in Ukraine has shown that if you, even if you're a greater power with nuclear weapons and all the rest of it, the cost of trying to take a country like that can be very high indeed. And I think, you know, if I, I can't imagine that, uh, that, that, that uh, Xi Jinping is looking at what's happened in Ukraine and thinking, "Oh, what a great idea! Let's let's try to do the same thing in Taiwan." I don't believe that's going. I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, I think a, a great deal of what you're talking about has already been achieved. The question is whether we're looking for the complete defeat and humiliation of Russia. And if we are, we need to examine carefully uh, what the possible risks of that would be. Brute, would you be okay with them keeping Crimea and the, and the areas that they had? Oh, if- I would be happy about it, um, but. You know, and I'm not. You know, I think this is ultimately up to the Ukrainians. Yep. But the idea that we are becoming ever more deeply involved here, and this is something that, for the longest time, it was fair to say that we were trying to help Ukraine without getting involved in a war. Now we've got officials, you know, leaking to reporters how our intelligence is what helped them to kill all these Russian generals. Our intelligence is what helped them sink their their flagship vessel uh, in, uh, you know, in. Uh, in the in the Black Sea, uh, all that. Um, Putin looks at this and he thinks, "I'm at war with NATO," and uh, this is something NATO was trying to avoid. Is and, and so it yep. becomes a question. This becomes this question. Every, the 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 concerns you express are the concerns that we have for NATO countries as a NATO member, 
So the question then arises, if we're going to treat Ukraine as if it were a NATO member, then it becomes meaningless that, it, that Ukraine is not a NATO member. Can that really be – is it really meaningless uh, that Ukraine is not a NATO member? Good point. Uh, the other thing is I think we agree, and even the president evidently agrees, that his secretary of defense coming out say my goal is to give a week in Russia and to have that leak out from the Pentagon that we provided the intelligence to kill between 12 and 20 generals and to kill their lead, their, num- their flagship on their, uh, in their Navy to blow up that warship was not positive. I asked Robert O'Brien that on Saturday. Here's what he said, cut 26. Now there's, there's somebody at the Pentagon or the White House, I don't know wh- who's doing it, it, it is leaking that, that we provided the intelligence that led to the, the uh, deaths of Russian generals. Look, you're quiet about these things. That's why they call our intelligence community the quiet professionals. We should help our allies. We should help the Ukrainians. But there's no reason to to spike the football or or, or take a a victory dance. Putin is suffering massive losses with his warships and with his his, uh, high command. Uh, There's no reason. Let let the Ukrainians uh, claim the victory. Let it be their victory. It is their victory. and, and, And we should stay a little quieter. So he 100% agrees with you, and he might have been one of the most valuable guys in the Trump administration. Well, I think he's I think he's an able guy and a smart guy, and I think the you know the risks in, that he cites are real, and uh, we need to we need to dial it back here. Now, uh, you know, Tom Friedman in the New York Times is reporting over the weekend that that uh, that Biden was furious about this and raised hell with the, the with the intelligence community and with the Pentagon about it. Um, I have, I'm a little skeptical of that claim, but he, if he is furious, he's right to be. Right, and Britt, finally, when you saw these demonstrations, the break-ins in churches, the fire, the, the Molotov cocktails in Wisconsin, um, uh, uh, pro-life clinics, what's your reaction to the to the leak of that draft uh, decision on Roe v. Wade? Well, the leak was was deeply regrettable in the sense that it that it interferes with the confidentiality that's necessary to appropriate <coughs> judicial consideration of, of the issues. Uh, beyond that, though, as a political matter, I think it's likely that, that uh, the Democratic Party will get a turnout boost from the upset over this apparent decision, particularly if it becomes the decision of the court. But that's likely to be offset to some extent by the behavior we're seeing in the aftermath of it with the protests, which may well be illegal outside uh, justices' houses, with the, uh, with the uh, firebombing of that uh, or the arson fire at that, at that uh, pro-life organization uh, in Wisconsin. So I think um, because lawlessness at the border in our cities is already an issue in this campaign, and it's not one that helps the Democrats, um, the lawlessness – and disorder we're seeing in reaction to this uh, leaked uh, draft opinion is likely to further that. Mitch McConnell coming out and saying if we get power, we might look for a total ban. Do you think that's a he good move? He didn't say that. He said it was possible, well, which when you think about it for a second, of course it's possible uh, that they could pass something like that if they had if they had a big enough majority in the Senate. But he did not advocate that, and, I, and knowing Mitch McConnell as I do, there's no way he would. Yeah, I thought it was um... – it was kind of clumsy to bring it up that way at all, but he didn't. He was answering. I think he was answering a question. Yeah. All right. Uh, we'll see how this plays out. I think uh, I'm just I'm just stunned by that. We still don't know this leaker yet. Uh, we keep telling, hearing that investigators say it shouldn't not be that tough to identify him. Inve- investigations of leaks are rarely successful. He is uh, Britt Hume. Britt, thanks so much. 
You bet, Brian. Good to talk to you, buddy, as always. Uh, same here. Thank you. Uh, 1-866-408-7669. We're going to come back with your phone calls. Then Holman Jenkins uh, joins us from the Wall Street Journal. Don't move. Brian Kilmer. A radio show of the people. For the people. You're with Brian Kilmeade. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Single-issue voters seldom decide the outcome of election. Enthusiasm is important, but here's what I would say. Uh, elected officials, elected by the people, now have a say about abortion. First time since 1973. That process will move forward. I don't believe it's going to change the outcome of the 2022 elections at all. When you go to the uh, grocery store and when you go to a gas station, uh, that's going to remind you the incompetency of the Biden administration. When you look at the southern border, this is not going to take people's eyes off of uh, rocket inflation, broken border, insecure America. Well, to, I think it will. I agree with Britt Hume. It'll, it'll invigorate the left because this law has been on the books and debated uh, passionately. Uh, since 1973, probably before that. But the other states is between 19 and 26 states have triggers in them saying that, you know, if Roe v. Wade is ever overturned, they're going to go down to zero, uh, maybe in some cases zero or just six weeks until the abortion becomes illegal. There are some corporations stepping up mildly and saying, like Amazon, saying we will transport you to another state if you need an abortion and you work for them. Uh, here's Amy Klobuchar on how they do not want Republicans making a decision on their personal health. Cut three. With this leaked opinion, the court is looking at reversing 50 years of women's rights, and the fall will be swift. Um, Over 20 states have laws in place already, Martha. And I think the question that voters are going to be asking when 75 percent of people are with us on this is who should make this decision? Should it be a woman and her doctor or a politician? Should it be Ted Cruz making this decision or a woman and her family? Where are women's equals rights? Here's Ted Cruz on that. Cut five. The draft opinion, we don't know what the final opinion will be, but the draft opinion was written by Justice Sam Alito, and and it's a masterful opinion. It it, it is careful, it is scholarly, it is historical. It it, it walks through how, for the first 185 years of our nation's history, the question of abortion was decided by elected legislatures, decided primarily at the state level. And that's where it would go, uh, right after that. And... If you are in Mississippi and you say, I don't like these laws, you elect different state legislators, different governors, and then you put those different laws in place. And it all goes into, you know, you pick places because of taxes, because of weather, because of jobs. 
Now you'll pick places because of where you stand on pro-life, pro-choice. That'll be part of it. Holman Jenkins is next. He's a member of the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal. And we've got to talk to him about how Russia could be on the precipice of losing A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. We had lots of interceptions when commanders would tell their seniors that soldiers don't want to fight. Then, seniors would give the permission to kill those who were unwilling in order to motivate the others to be cannon fodder. To the question of why they came to Ukrainian land, Russians just say, of course, that they didn't know where they were going, why this war is happening, the power that should change in Russia, etc. We still have several war prisoners who we offer to trade, but the Russian Federation isn't interested in trading for them. So that is Captain Bogdan uh, Kratovich. And if you say to yourself, I never heard that before, it's through a translator. He speaks, does not speak English. But he got word that he wanted to tell what's going on in the, in the steel mines in Mariupol, where there's 100 Marines... And the Azov group, which is their elite fighting unit, and he's a member of that. He's been fighting since 2014, never wanted to be a soldier, but has to, the Azov, the Azov Battalion. So he, he asked me, so we got word, he said, if uh, he'll answer any of my questions. So that was one of the questions I have. When you capture a Russian soldier, what do they tell you? And that's what they're saying. Uh, they have no conviction for this fight. They have no idea why they're here. They said they don't even have to harshly interrogate him, and they don't want to anyway, but they just start talking. Uh, maybe to save themselves. Holman Jenkins is a member of this, uh, the Wall Street Journal editorial board. He writes twice a week in the Business World column. We have a lot to discuss with him about, especially what's happening after Russia's victory speech today. Holman, welcome. Hi. Nice to be with you. Um, first off, the, on this speech that we thought that the Russians were going to say they're going to announce a nationwide uh, draft and they were going to uh, double and triple down, and uh, we heard that maybe he's going to threaten nuclear war. None of that happened. Why? Uh, because he doesn't want a bigger fight. He doesn't want to antagonize his own people who, uh, you know, as, as the defectors are telling you, they don't want to participate in this war. He would have to launch a nationwide draft and drag in a bunch of people, people who are basically his supporters, the provincials, the less educated people who don't live in Moscow and St. Petersburg. They would have to be cannon fodder for this war. And I don't think he wants to court the unpopularity that would uh, be involved in, in sending more troops to die in this pointless war. Yeah, well, no, I hear you. And also, what do you think of the CIA director coming out saying that the the word that they're getting is that Putin says he can't lose. He'll do anything not to lose. So that means he's going to be doubling, and he expects him to double and triple down. But with what? With what, exactly? I think what he's saying is basically Putin's just going to dig in and try and hold on to what he's got and see if he can withstand uh, the Ukrainian offensive that's likely coming based on all the arms we're pouring in there and look for a stalemate. There's no outcome that he would ever he would ever label a defeat. Everything, anything is going to be a victory in his PR. And he has enough control over the media at home to put that over for a while, though not forever, because word trickles back from the front about what's really happening. But, you know, I think basically Putin just punted in this uh, speech today. He's still looking for a way out, but he hasn't found it. But he definitely he definitely doesn't. he, He could have, like, decided to you know, start targeting NATO uh, bases across the border in Poland or Romania to try and attack the supply lines. He's not doing any of that, so he's definitely telling you he's not looking for a bigger confrontation. Well, that's in, that, that's interesting, and then you have to wonder what he wants is what kind of uh, what kind of situation does he want? Does he want to? And you write that he wants to paint this uh, Russia against NATO, not against the yeah, loss of Ukraine. That- 
Sure, he did that in the speech today because he can't afford to lose to Ukraine, but he can't afford to have a stalemate, a prolonged, uh, you know, what they call a, a frozen conflict if if the enemy is the West, because he has always admitted to his uh, people that the West is so much richer, its military power is so much greater than Russia's. Uh, they don't expect him to take on NATO and win. So he's being the hero, you know, protecting uh, Russia. He he painted the Ukraine war as basically preemptive to stop a Western assault on Russia. That's a ridiculous uh, storyline. But, of course, that's the one he's selling because it makes him a hero defending Russia from the alleged Nazis of Ukraine and their Western backers. I mean, think about what they've done. You know, they went into the Middle East, into Syria, and they really, they kept Assad in power. They decided they want a piece of Georgia. They took it and kept it. And they decided they want Crimea and some of the Donbass region. They took it and kept it with almost no resistance. Were they that delusional to think they were that powerful? Or do you think Vladimir Putin was being lied to uh, about what he was looking at, what he was looking at in the Ukraine and what his soldiers were capable of? Yes, he was lied to about the state of his military, and he was lied to about the state of the Ukrainian population's willingness to resist. You know, because probably the people, it serves someone's interest to lie to him and tell him what he wanted to hear. And they never expected it to come to this because he's actually been a very cautious player. He does not throw himself into situations where he might actually lose and taking on Georgia and grabbing Crimea. Those were basically no risk situations for him, whereas this was a big, wild gamble that, you know, is only a colossal miscalculation on his part. Or there's some theory that, uh, that you know, he's uh, dying of something and he wants to. You know, this is not a roll of the dice for him because he has no future. I don't know if that's true or not. But uh, this was completely out of character for him to take this kind of risk. And lastly, I want you to go one more uh, cut from the captain. Uh, when asked what they need to be successful, what does Ukraine need to win? This is what he said, cut 35. Naturally, I am very pleased to hear the whole world is united around Ukraine and that Ukraine sets an example of courage. However, I have to say that support can be provided in word and in action. I must note that Western countries help us with weapons and economically. However, when you are under attack, payment for medical treatment is helpful, but it's not all that can be done. Let me give you an example. When it comes to Azov Regiment, when we see the strong hurting the weak, we always come to their defense with actions instead of words and beat those who hurt the weak. So he's trying to say, thanks for what you've done, but you could be doing more. Yes, but and we're not going to. I'm pretty certain that Biden is going to stick to his uh, guns, he misuse a phrase, and keep us out of a direct shooting conflict with Russia. So it's going to be up to Ukraine with all of our uh, the material equipment we can supply them to see what it can do against the Russians, either push them out or at least reach a stalemate. Something big would have to change before we would get involved. Uh, Holman Jenkins, my guest, Wall Street Journal. The other thing you wrote about uh, is Hillary Clinton and the Durham inquiry. I mean, Michael Sussman's such a bigger indictment than anyone initially thought. I mean, his link uh, for that law firm, his link to the uh, Christopher Steele, his link to the FBI and his direct contact with Hillary Clinton and lying about it, I don't think can be understated. Do you think it's understood? Uh, I don't know. It depends on what happens in this trial. You know, he has to, Sussman has, I mean, uh, uh, Durham, the John Durham, the special counsel has to take it before a D.C. jury, which is going to be very anti-Trump and pro-democratic. Uh, the Sussman is going to argue that the lie wasn't material because the FBI knew he was lying, which is probably true. But if he gets a conviction, no, look, the story, the story is important and the media should be taking up and investigating and following all the leads that Durham has come up with. But they're not going to do that. They're going to protect uh, Biden and Hillary. So if he gets a conviction, 
that is going to uh, have to be a big a turning point. Even the you know people who want to deny the story is important are going to have to pay attention to it. We'll know in a few weeks. Uh, we will. And the other thing I find fascinating is you got this Hollywood lawyer who is financed, who paid off Hunter Biden's uh, Hunter Biden's tax bill, millions of dollars, and now he's financing his life in Malibu. And everyone's trying to figure out why would you do this, and why would the IRS be investigating someone like Hunter Biden since 2018. We're in 2022 now. What has taken so long? Well, Hunter Biden is a you know, he's a, he's a hot potato, obviously. Especially, you know, the the anti-Trump uh, animus was so permeating through all of uh, Washington's establishment that it was just anything that looked like it might help Trump was something they didn't want to touch. And Hunter Biden was explosive for the Biden campaign. It's interesting because, you know, it was, it was the mainstream press, the New York Times, New Yorker magazine, ABC News, all launched investigations in, you know, 2018 or thereabouts about whether Hunter Biden was going to ruin his father's uh, presidential hopes. Now they've all run away from that story because it was just too dangerous to Joe Biden in 2020 when he was, you know, he was the dyke who was going to hold back Trumpism. So I think there's still lingering, you know, that sense that if you take up the Hunter Biden story, you're, you're a, a Trump supporter. And so that's why it's very difficult for anybody to come out and admit what's going on here. This guy's name is Kevin Morris. And then you have the situation where the they're moving on the investigation on the laptop that shows a direct link to Joe. So, Holman, how does this play out? I mean, do we going to just let this peter out? And do you think the American people are happy with their choice so far? Well, they're certainly not happy with their economy, with inflation. You know, that Joe Biden can't really be blamed for COVID, but he promised that it was going to be over once he took over in the White House. And it, has, it hasn't ended. It's still out there for a lot of people. So there's a lot of reasons that it, no Democrat would be in a very strong position today having to go into a reelection or into these midterms, given the state of things. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, so I don't think that you can uh, tr- trace it all to distrust over uh, the Hunter Biden thing. But, you know, it doesn't help and it doesn't it it makes it pretty likely that Joe isn't going to run again, I think, because once the Republicans take over the Congress and start investigating and and, and creating more uh, publicity about these things, it's going to be very hard for the Democrats to nominate him, I would guess. Of course, he, he probably won't put them in that position. He'll decide he wanted, wants to be a one-term president. That's what he always intended. Right. I mean, one thing that was pretty clear, if you look at the, the Washington Correspondents' Dinner and other interviews, he's telling everybody he's two terms. He's almost trying to back off the field, and nobody really thinks that that Kamala Harris is the heir apparent. If I was to ask you, is there two or three Democrats you think that are on the rise, who would you name? Oh, my gosh, you're asking the wrong person. I've been focused on other things lately. And, it's you know, but you're right. He has basically frozen the field because Kamala seems unacceptable to a lot of people. And as long as Joe says that he's intending to run, he's holding off his lame duck status. You know, he doesn't know what the situation is going to be in 2024. Maybe he will run. Maybe he'll suddenly, you know, the economy will bounce back and he'll be triumphant in Ukraine and he'll be a shoe in. So he's not going to give up the clout. That comes from being a president who, you know, it, it might be running for a second term. Uh, as for Democrats, yeah. you know, Go ahead. you know, I, I, Amy Klobuchar is a person who I think among Democrats is the most level-headed. I'd like to see her get some traction, but uh, she hasn't uh, made much noise lately. Right. Uh, thanks so much, Holman Jenkins. We'll look forward to reading your next column of the Wall Street Journal. Thank you. You bet.
You got it. one 408 We'll come back. We'll take your calls. We're also going to look at the economy. Do you know people are having trouble in this country getting baby formula? What else is next? Do you know also, we were told, expect rolling blackouts in major cities. Why? Not global warming. It's because we've gone green. We've gone to wind and solar to such a degree that nobody thinks we're going to be able to power ourselves this summer. Thanks. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. New York City has launched a new campaign to stop speeding in the city with a series of signs designed to scare drivers. The terrifying signs read simply, entering New Jersey. Uh, that, was, uh, <laughs> that was some of the comedy this weekend, but I think SNL was pretty much all Roe v. Wade. Did you guys watch it at all? Did you watch it, Allison? I did not, but I did find a few highlights like that one. Right, yeah, it was just that, just a conscientious where Republicans are bad, Roe v. Wade is the best thing ever. Uh, there was just no sense of uh, diversifying it off at all. But uh, that's pretty much consistent with what Los Angeles is doing now. So uh, we'll see where this goes. Um, we haven't really discussed this in detail. Governor Tate Reeves is in uh, as governor of Mississippi that brought this case forward that had the Supreme Court look at it, maybe write this opinion. They were all waiting on to be officially out there that nobody thinks the Supreme Court justices will budge from overturning it. We just don't know what John Roberts is going to do. Here he was on Meet the Press, and here's what he said. Cut one. If, in fact, the, the leaked opinion, Chuck, is accurate, and if, in fact, this court votes to overturn Roe, you are correct. Our trigger law will go into effect, and we will ban abortions, with the exceptions of rape and the, the life of the mother because of that trigger law that passed uh, in 2007. Yeah, so they have a trigger law that says if this ever got reversed, this will be it. So that'll be one of those states you probably don't want to go to if you want an abortion. And that's you had a lot of people talking about the decision, a lot of people, very few talking about the leak, and a lot of people on both sides talking about the hyperbole that's around it. For example, Senator Gillibrand, who never does anything besides ever since you got rid of Al Franken, you never see her anywhere. Cut seven. This is about basic equality. It's about whether women in America have a right to make these decisions, whether they have a right to decide who and when they have children with, under what circumstances. So I just got an email that says uh, this is some of the emails from Kevin. Kevin says, someone needs to ask, can an abortion be prevented? Yes, by either having protected sex or abstaining. So when there is an abortion needed, when a rape has happened or incest, a mother that is in danger, because in two of those occasions, the woman had no choice. So it comes down to being a responsible person preventing an abortion. That's what some would say, including Kevin. Mike Lee weighed in to counter Senator Gillibrand. Cut eight. A lot of the clamor against the draft decision, which I hope and expect will end up being the opinion of the court because it's masterfully written. I've never been more proud to be a, a former law clerk to Justice Alito uh, than I had after reading that uh, wonderful opinion. Uh, uh, but look, it, it, all those who are attacking that opinion are suggesting that somehow this is going to be a huge problem. They're saying that it's overthrowing democracy. Nonsense. It, this, this actually enables democratic processes. 
So Mike Lee, a judicial scholar, a constitutional scholar, too. I just got an email, too, from Wade. Wade says, I'm pro-choice. Choice happens sometimes before conception. That's a good point. I understand it. Here's a Lindsey Graham, cut 10. The states will finally have control over this. And here's the one common theme. If you don't like the outcome of the abortion debate, now you can kick people out of office who actually vote. Before, you were shut out. You had no avenue. Five judges, six judges, seven judges determined when life begins and how it ends. And I think that was wrong from the start. Now, finally, elected officials have a say about life and the conditions of an abortion. I think that's the way it should be. Well, that's interesting. We're going to find out state by state. But Dan Abrams, also uh, ABC's chief legal analyst, said that it is not unfathomable to think that this one decision could lead to other decisions on interracial marriage, gay marriage, and other things. I don't see that at all, but here's his rationale. Cut 11. When you look at precedent, I think that the most important question moving forward after this case is going to be what could be next? And I think that certainly uh, the gay marriage ruling is going to be on the table. Why? Because Justice Alito wrote a dissent in that case, which used almost the exact same reasoning as he's using in this case. And so I think it is entirely fair to ask, okay, could that be next? Could he have five votes for something like that? And of course, you would also need uh, states to outlaw it as well. There's no way people are even entertaining the gay marriage retraction. There's no case been brought up. And I don't see it happening with the Supreme Court justices. I'm pretty sure that that's dramatically different. They also went on to say, not Dan, but interracial marriage. Really? Clarence Thomas would do that? Outlaw his own marriage? I don't think that makes sense. Having people go across state lines, uh, make that forbidden to go across state lines to get an abortion? That doesn't make any sense. That's not even rooted in any fact. I do believe that this will play a major role in the midterms, depending on what happens in June, if this decision comes out in June. But why? Why are we waiting to June? If you wrote it up already, just do it. Just tell everyone what happened. Have a chance to digest it. Let these states weigh in on it. And if you don't like it in Virginia, you can flip your legislature. You can flip your governors uh, eventually, not right away, but in other states. And sometimes you can flip them in two years or four years. You do have a say in it. Hey, uh, if you want to know about American history and get some perspective on what we're going through right now, go to BrianKillMe.com. You can get the President Freedom Fighter, Sam Houston, the Alamo Avengers, Thomas Jefferson, the Triple E Pirates, Andrew Jackson, the Miracle of New Orleans, or George Washington's Secret Six. I can personalize and send out. Mother's Day can't happen, but Father's Day, man, that seems perfect. Don't move. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Michael Goodwin standing by. Susan Lee. Uh, to make sense of our economy right now, the market's down precipitously, 375 points today. They are not buying that a recession is not likely, which is, uh, uh, the chairman of the Fed said. 
I uh, hope you had a great Mother's Day weekend as we look ahead. I come to you from 48th and 6th, right in Midtown Manhattan, but heard around the country, heard around the world, especially in the Ukraine. Before we get to Michael Goodwin, the New York Post, and how the press continues to provide a soft landing and special curve when it comes to Joe Biden speaking, let's go to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Sponsored by LifeFact. Save a life in a choking emergency. Visit LifeFact.net to learn more and use code BK10 to save 10%. Number three. They have nothing to celebrate tomorrow. They have uh, not succeeded in defeating the Ukrainians. They've not succeeded in dividing NATO. They have only succeeded in isolating themselves internationally. Uh, That's Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Vladimir Putin's annual cocktail speech, as he has a big victory speech, pure fiction as he spouts phony reasons for invading Ukraine, says they had nuclear weapons and Nazis. Uh, while his troops struggled to even record successes in the East and South, where evidently they had more experienced soldiers and they're fortified. We'll explain. Number two. For some truckers, diesel prices are becoming unbearable. This independent trucker says he's losing more money on the road. You know, the price is skyrocketing and uh, we still don't get good prices, you know, for the loads. If, if it goes any higher than this and prices for the loads not coming up, then maybe we just we'll, we'll call it a quit. Yeah, call it a day, $1,000 to fill up this tank, he was saying. But Joe Biden continues to blame inflation on Vladimir Putin, the Putin price hike, as he and the G7 leaders commit to a ban and a phase out of Russian oil imports. This is diesel gas prices in the U.S. hit a record high. Thanks, Joe. Number one. I'm unapologetically pro-life. I'm also unapologetically against mob rule. And the left has been attempting to intimidate the court with mob rule. The left has been attempting to intimidate the court by threatening to pack it, by threatening violence. Now we're seeing the violence. Uh, that is Senator Bill Cassidy, also a doctor. The draft opinion that has rocked American politics spilled into churches and in front of the homes of Supreme Court justices. The issue, the reality, and the party positions. Plus, will, uh, will we ever learn more about the identity of the leaker? Michael Goodwin joins us now for the New York Post. Uh, Michael, first off, not a surprise in New York City. They also saw a storming of uh, churches and protests everywhere. Uh, Where's this protest? Where's all this heading? Well, good morning, Brian. Look, I think that uh, what we saw over the weekend is consistent with what we've been seeing for the last couple of years. I mean, it's now that the Supreme Court is illegitimate. Uh, the justices are fair game. Their houses, uh, houses of worship are fair game, pri- primarily Catholic because of the uh, abortion issue, of course. But I think this is who the left is, and we are seeing more and more examples of it as it spreads across society, different issues, different locations, uh, different groups, you know, with no respect, no regard for anybody or anything, tearing down the country, tear down the statues, tear down the court, tear down all the institutions, rewrite America's history. Um, This is is the new left, and we, we shouldn't kid ourselves. I think that uh, the polls say the public is set to reject it. But, you know, I'm not confident. I, I think a lot of Americans are easily fooled. I think the the mainstream media supporting all of this, uh, you, you know, you saw with Disney, for example, um, 
we had the in New York City the Jewish Museum of of history of Jewish history Museum of Jewish history uh, uh, forbidding Ron DeSantis to come and speak. Uh, I mean, this is this has now reached uh, serious levels. I, I think of insanity, of of this wokeness corrupting uh, everything that it. And, and you know, I want to go back to what you just said. I, I read that too over the weekend. I meant to bring that up. Why would this museum in New York City have a problem with Ron DeSantis? What did he do that's against the Jewish community anywhere? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But he is he is more conservative. And I have no doubt that the board of directors, at least the key members of the board, it's the Museum of Jewish Heritage. I'm sorry. That's the proper name uh, that many of them just get their news from The New York Times. And so the bill that DeSantis signed to give parents, uh, you know, some supervision and some say in in preventing the indoctrination of their children in K through three, the New York York Times, among others, labeled that "Don't Say Gay," and I'm convinced that the board of trustees of the Heritage Museum said, "Don't say gay. We can't. We're not having that man in our house." <laughs> they didn't read the bill. But they get their news from the New York Times. I mean, that's the problem: is that the media is infusing a lot of false information into our society. Uh, Brian, we have never seen anything like it, and it shows no signs of self-correction. Yeah, remember Jim Crow 2.0 in Georgia? Yes. Nothing to do with that. The, the baseball all-star game leaves. It got so embarrassing. Stacey Abrams now did, tried to change her editorial in USA Today after it already published, so as if it was not her idea to boycott the way they did. But Disney changed everything uh, by the price that they have paid literally in their stock today uh, for standing up and being determined to overturn a bill they probably didn't read. So I thought Brett Baer did a great job tackling this issue this weekend. Senator Chris Murphy thought he'd get away with saying what you just said. Listen to this. Cut 36. I am very concerned about the sort of very quick, hateful, divisive turn that the Republican Party has taken. This effort in Florida to sort of target gay kids in schools, um, I just think is mean-spirited and something that I had not seen from the Republican Party when I first started out in politics 20 years ago. Hold Um, on, I'm going to interrupt you. To target gay kids in schools? I mean, the bill is about not talking about sexual identity from K through third grade. That's not targeting gay kids. Yes, it is. It absolutely is. It is sending a message to these kids that they are not worthy, that they should be ashamed of their identification. It says, Senator, that you don't teach subjects with gender identity. You don't think that those kids don't take a message from a, from a ban on the discussion of their identity suggests that they are not worthy of existence in that school. I mean, do you believe this guy? He, he thinks people know their identity in kindergarten through third grade? Look, that that is the perfect summation of how insane the Democratic Party has become. Chris Murphy, a, you know, smart young young man. I think he's I think he served militarily, uh, but they've been brainwashed by the media. And this 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 thing, Brian, of labeling. Uh, James Freeman in the Wall Street Journal had a had a wonderful little snippet about you know, build back better is the is the name that Biden chose for his bill. 
But it was the and, and so all the media went with build back better. Right. But in Florida, all the media went with don't say gay, yeah. which was not the name of the bill. It was the name the uh, bill's opponents, the activists gave it. But it became the name. So Freeman wrote about the naming rights, the legislation naming rights always go to Democrats. And I think that's a major problem in our society, that it is a form of misinformation, which is broadcast and reprinted uh, by the mainstream media. So you have the mainstream media contributing to false information. And you have to say at this stage of the game, it's knowingly and intentionally. It's, it's not an accident. It's not ignorance. It's intentional. I guess so. And you have the president of the United States who they can't uh, provide a soft enough cushion for on everything he touches. You know, I was watching, if you think about over the weekend, uh, what, what people were talking about is the economy. Well, what can you do? Well, we can do a lot. You could focus on supply chain, number one. Number two, you could tell me about your emphasis to bring back our, our vital uh, manufacturing back here, things like the PPE and oil and gas. Number two, don't pass $1.9 trillion when Steve Ratner, a fellow liberal economist, and Larry Summers said we don't need it and it's scary to do it. And then sit there and continue to print money through for an entire year while not pushing people to get back to work. There were things that could happen that could have prevented this. And it didn't. And now we're in a situation where the market is down about on an average 400 points a day. It's been a terrible it's been a terrible year so far. Yeah. You know, um, Harry Truman's great line, uh, the buck stops here, sitting on his Oval Office desk. With Joe Biden, the buck stops somewhere else. It stops, it stops with Vladimir Putin. It stops with Republicans. Uh, who knows? It's never his responsibility, even though, as you say, all of these policy decisions directly cause this. And, and others warned him against it, and as you say, including Democrats. But he, you know, the, as I write in my Sunday column, Brian, the central mystery to me of why Joe Biden turned his administration over to the far left, I think, remains unanswered. Why did he do this? Why did Joe Biden, sort of a career moderate by and large, why, why did he sacrifice his presidency on the altar of the far left? I mean, he has – he is made done great damage to this country. I mean, look at the border. We are going at one point it was said America had 11 million undocumented immigrants, right? That was the number used for 10 years. We've got more than a million in the last year alone. I mean, it will the, the border issue, the 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 issue of the uh, illegal immigrants living in this country illegally will never be solved for another generation because of the numbers being added by Joe Biden. I mean, it is it is just unforgivable what he and his administration are doing to this country. You know, it's kind I mean, of, yeah. Afghanistan continues to reverberate around the world. You're seeing a realignment of our former allies in the Mideast now looking, looking for partners elsewhere because America has become unreliable because Joe Biden simply turned, turned the government over to we don't know who. Is it Barack Obama's third term? Is Susan Rice running the government? Who's making these decisions? I mean, it's, it's just un, unclear what the heck is going on in that White House to come up with these ideas. 
couple other things, just real quick. On this leak of this of this draft of a decision on overturning Roe v. Wade, I really would like to find out the who's, who's behind it. Democrats are beginning to show some interest. They think it's a distraction initially, but obviously it isn't. Nina Totenberg, on uh, this week with George Stephanopoulos, she's a legal, uh, legal affairs advisor on NPR. Listen to her speculation, cut 14. And it can only, in all likelihood, have come from a justice that I think is less likely, uh, perhaps one of the clerks and the leading the leading theory is a conservative clerk who was afraid that one of the conservatives might be persuaded by Chief Justice Roberts into, to join a much more um, moderate <laughs> opinion. Um, and then there's another theory that it was an outraged liberal clerk. But I think the only one that makes sense is that it came from somebody who was afraid that this majority might not hold, that Chief Justice Roberts might persuade one of the conservatives to come over to him in a much more moderate opinion. Hey, conservative, that's the predominant, that's the conventional thought. I'd be stunned. Yeah, yeah. Conventional thought among Nina Totenberg and six friends. Um, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Um, who is celebrating the leak? Who is who is maximizing the fallout of the leak? I mean, all those demonstrators going to Kavanaugh's house in the middle of the night and that sort of thing. Are, are they conservatives upset and concerned? Come on. She, she's not even she's not even trying, Brian. That's that's just propaganda. <laughs> but she was allowed to get away with it. So we'll yep, find out. Of course. Yeah. So what do you think the right uh, – what what, what, right now, here we are in May, what role will that have in November, this whole decision? Let's say they go ahead and formalize it with an official announcement in June. I think it will be a big – I don't think it's going to be – I think it will be a big factor in the race, don't you? You do? Yeah, I do. I, I tend not to. Uh, I think it could in some states – but but I but I think there wouldn't be many. Uh, look, I I think uh, unless inflation is tamed, unless unless the hot burner issues are fixed, which I don't think is likely, then abortion could rise. But I think right now the the pocketbook issues are are the most paramount. I mean the inflation. You know, just look at what's going to happen to the housing market with the interest rates. Uh, I, I you know having baby formula shortages now. I think there are a lot of critical issues. I think abortion is, in many cases, I, I don't mean to say, I don't mean to be cruel to the individuals involved, but it's something of an elite issue. It's one of those things that the left-wing media gets more incensed about than I think most Americans. Most Americans, I think, understand it is a local issue. It will, it will, you're not losing abortion rights. They're now the issue is now turning to the states, and the states will have different answers. But increasingly, the Mississippi law is a kind of bellwether of, of 15 weeks, up, up to 15 weeks, is a kind of bellwether of where the country itself is by and large. Not everybody, of course, but I think it is becoming the consensus opinion as to the right limits. Michael Goodwin, always great to talk to you. It's an exciting time. I look forward to your columns every Sunday, almost in an inordinate type way, almost an unhealthy way. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much. 
My pleasure, Brian. Thank Appreciate you. It. Of course, uh, in New York, he writes in the New York Post, but often speaks for the country. one 408 I'll come back. I'll take your calls. Then we take uh, examining what's happening with our economy. I mean, we can't get things. We can't get gas price uh, gas priced in a way that's affordable. And for, for new moms, you're having trouble getting baby formula, right? Back in a moment. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Fertilizer shortages are real now because Russia is a big exporter of fertilizer. And even though fertilizer is not sanctioned, uh, less fertilizer is coming out of Russia. As a result, we're working with countries to think about natural solutions like manure and compost. And this may hasten transitions that would have been in the interest of farmers to make eventually anyway. So never let a crisis go to waste, but we really do need this financial support uh, from the Congress to be able to meet emergency food needs. I think what we have here is one of the most avoidable, easily avoidable yes. uh, economic crises in the last sort of 20 years. And something that was created, pure, it's pure cynicism. cynicism. Cynicism on Biden's part that he kept spending and kept putting all these lefties in regulatory jobs. And it was cynicism because he wanted to be more liberal, more, transition, more transformational progressive than his buddy Barack. That is what Charlie Gasparino said, uh, and he said it over the weekend. He said it to Tucker, and I think it's 100% true. There are things that happen. No one really predicted the pandemic. No one really predicted uh, certain things that take place. You have natural disasters. But then how you react really defines how bad it will be. In some ways, we're back, but on many ways, we're not because of progressive policies, redistribution of wealth, lack of follow-up on the money that we printed and handed out. Susan Lee comes in and puts our economy in perspective, what we should worry about and where we should be putting our money specifically. Don't move. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I think a recession is at this stage you know, almost inevitable. And we also see uncertainty about oil prices up and down, et cetera. And so, you know, as I said earlier, it's a witch's brew. And the probability of a recession is, I think, unfortunately, very, very high. Well, does Susan Lee think that? Fox Business correspondent, you see her all over the channel reporting on the anchor desk uh, as a guest. Susan Lee, what do you think? Is, there, is your sources saying that we're heading towards a recession? Well, it's a tough balancing act for the Federal Reserve, which they haven't had a good track record of avoiding, unfortunately, in these high inflationary times. So, you know, we already have one quarter, which is one quarter of negative growth, which is already halfway there to recession. But I think you also have to take in the positives here, Kilmeade, which is that the the jobs market is actually very strong. We saw that with the latest jobs number in April on Friday, right? You still have 11 and a half million record job openings. And I think there is some, some hope that maybe we can escape recession, but there are lots of unknowns, as you know, with Ukraine, China all of a sudden, and COVID lockdowns. So the administration would say, we didn't see that coming. And I would say Wall Street probably would say the same thing too. So let me ask him, what is your take on when the president comes out and says, hey, you know, I cut the deficit. My predecessor never did that. Is that deceptive, that statement? 
Well, I, I don't think that should be the focus right now because obviously we have much bigger matters than, say, the deficit. We have trading partners, what, second largest economy right now, that's uh, probably in some trouble because you heard the Chinese premier there last night saying that they're going to have an employment issue in a country of 1.3 billion. Also, you had Chinese exports at a two-year low. So, you know, that, that's all felt around the world, as we learned in 2008, that it's so globalized that a sneeze here means a cold elsewhere, possibly here on U.S. shores. So I think there are probably bigger issues right now than, say, cutting the deficit. Let's keep people employed and let's uh, keep 401ks at a healthy level. Now, would you also say that when you spend ridiculous amounts of money on a pandemic, when you shut the country down and you stop spending that ridiculous amount of money, it does cut the deficit, but it doesn't cut it? They say it's the fourth biggest deficit ever right now. That's really not portraying an accurate story. Well, also, don't forget, a lot of that money that was printed during the pandemic, a lot of that flooded into stock markets, right? And you saw that day traders, this rise in retail, average Joe traders, you know, at at a peak last year, they were driving 30% of the stock market, and now they're feeling the pain. In fact, I think they've been wiped out. I saw the latest statistics from Morgan Stanley saying that the meme stock traders, those that bought into the AMCs and the GameStops, they've lost everything that they've made over the past two years. We're talking about $9 trillion in stock market losses just this year alone in 2022. So, yes, you can print the money, but once those printing machines are off and they're being cut off, you feel that. And I think people are coming down to reality right now. Uh, yeah, in a way. Uh, what I thought Charlie Gasparino had an interesting take. Um, listen to what he was saying. Cut 22. Larry Summers, you know, Steve Ratner, all these you know, liberal economists were saying – Last year, we're going to have massive inflation if you don't stop spending. We're going to have massive inflation if you don't stop printing money. And then the the only cure for massive inflation is to induce a a recession that could be deep. And the reason why you do that is because when you have massive inflation, it it, it destroys the fabric of every society. It's like being in a a recession or a depression. So you try to you try to kill it. It's only it's it's I hate to put it this way. It's like chemotherapy. It's the only thing that works and it hurts. And that's what we're going to go through now. And we're only doing this right now because Joe Biden was so cynical that he wanted to be more progressive than Obama. And Powell wanted his job for another term. It's It's scary. scary. Did you do you sign on to both those theories? Now, to be fair, though, wouldn't you say that, yes, we got an infrastructure plan of a trillion dollars. That's a lot of money. But we didn't get get the Build Back Better plan, which is, what, three to four trillion dollars. And at some point, and Larry Summers, by the way, I think he also pointed to the supply chain crisis and what's happening with ports around the world. All that congestion, meaning that there are less parts. You have to pay much higher prices for things that you can find on the shelves. But, you know, inflation, obviously not good for an economy, but also how you do it and how you bring it down and the speed at which you try to clamp down on it is important. And I think it's consensus that the Federal Reserve should have started raising interest rates last year. And right now they're behind the curve, meaning that they're trying to do all they can to bring down inflation quickly. And that, by the way, risks a policy mistake. And we know that bull markets don't die of old age, right? Kill me. You know, we know that I was going to make a 
an age-related joke there, but I, I won't do it this morning. <laughs> I'll, I'll say that for another time. Uh, no, you but, already uh, did. You already did. The damage is done, Susan. How dare you? Susan. I'm just saying, bull markets don't die of old age. They die of policy mistakes, whether it's an error from the Federal Reserve or from the government or some unforeseen events like pandemics. And that's, uh, that's a big concern right now on Wall Street. Yeah, a couple of things. Inflation's at 8.5% and wages went up 5.5%. Now, China is struggling to export. That's affecting us. But their inflation's yeah. 1.2%. Is that all about government controls? I mean, why is their inflation so low? Number? Well, you tell me. You You're the expert. The uh, I would I would be skeptical. Also, some of you know people have been very skeptical on the COVID numbers. If you're looking at twenty to thirty thousand cases, yet you have a citywide, provincewide, and some would say countrywide shutdown over those thousands of cases. You know, some would say maybe that number is a lot higher than what the Chinese government is reporting right now. But it's a big concern when you have major corporations. You know, Apple, of course, its second largest market is China. They already told, they guided the market that they're going to lose $8 billion in potential sales in the springtime because of the COVID lockdowns and shutdowns over in China. Tesla, I mean, they have a big Chinese Shanghai factory there, which not only makes cars to export in China, but for European markets and elsewhere around the world. So there are some big corporation concerns right now, and that's also feeding into why we're looking at possibly a bear market, which is 20 percent down from recent peaks for the broader S&P. So I guess we're going to see the supply chain with Beijing being shut down. We expect things to slow down, right? And that's going to affect us. And I guess the war definitely plays a role when it comes to food, correct? Yep. Absolutely. So we're still looking at pretty elevated inflation levels because, you know, we're also digging through those jobs numbers on on Friday. If you really dig in between and look at something called the participation rate, we saw the first time in nine months that people actually dropped out of the workforce. So what that tells us is that you're going to have to pay a lot higher wages to keep and find the people that still want to work. And that means to me, inflation levels are going to stay pretty high, at least for some time. But you do have Federal Reserve governors this morning, Fed talk, as we call it, a lot of them on the big channel saying that we're going to try to bring inflation down at 2%. That's not going to happen this year. And some would say, if you look already at some of the uh, the numbers that we're getting in the first quarter of this year, with inflation and wages growing at twice the rate of that 2% Federal Reserve target, that's gonna. That's not gonna happen for some time to bring it down to that level. Maybe next year at the earliest. Wow. Uh, so this is gonna be is gonna be a bit of a struggle right now. I just wondered, Susan, is there anything to do to control inflation besides bringing up interest rates? Well, look, that's a pretty blunt instrument, as you heard from the Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell last week as well. I mean, you can't really target certain parts of the economy that's causing the spike in inflation. Now, what they can do, and I I believe from what the the Federal Reserve can control, is probably from the demand side, meaning if you raise interest rates, that means me and you, consumers, are going to buy less because we have to pay more in interest, whether it's to service our credit card debt or our mortgages. They can't control the supply side, meaning they can't control the supply chains and whether or not they're going to get this glut cleared from these ports, whether China is going to be able to reopen and produce goods once again, and whether Ukraine and Russia is going to be solved. So I would say it's a big question mark whether or not we can escape a recession 
But right now, the Federal Reserve would say, well, it's not our fault. There are a lot of unforeseen events taking place around the world, and interest rates is probably not going to be able to solve, I guess, all the problems out there right now. So, Susan, did you spend your Mother's Day with your mother? I wish. (laughs) I was uh, unfortunately stuck in bed a little under the weather after being on the road for the last 12 days, whether it's in the Bahamas for the crypto event and the White House correspondence dinner and then uh, over to the Milken Conference in L.A. How about you? Um, well, I, we, had a, we had a solid Mother's Day. Uh, my wife was very, uh, I think she was very happy, <laughs> but two of her kids were missing. Solid. So that, there you go. Oh. But um, so you're not healthy and you still, and you no, still did a- the show. That is such, that just, it's a great, <laughs> uh, it's a great example to show the rest of America. I, I'm just trying to work with kill me time. I don't have kill me energy because you are the hardest working man on television, definitely at Fox. And well, we're just all in awe of what is, you drink and put in your coffee every day. Well, I will not submit to a drug test. Maybe that's a clue. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. That's but, but good no, hits. I appreciate it. No, but thank you. We have to tap into your knowledge because we're in un- – uh, this is a whole group of people – that are growing up, maybe you're in that bracket that never had to deal with inflation before, and they said the Gen Zers in company, they're saying, wait a second, why is it harder to get a house? Why is it harder to, to fill up my gas tank? Why, you know, what is going on with the, the price of plane tickets? And this is something yeah. that was prevalent uh, early on, you know, the 80s, 70s, obviously, and now it's yeah. back and people are freaked out about it. That's why I need experts like you. Well, okay. Can I just make one point though? Because I, I have yeah. been talking to the younger generation, whether it's the uh, Gen Zs, Gen X, I'll even throw in there, and the millennials. But can you imagine coming out of college in 2008? So not only have you gone through a global financial crisis where you were struggling to find work, and then when you did find work, it was at a lower pay. But now you've gone through COVID and you've gone through this inflationary spiral, and now Ukraine, Russia. I would say that a lot of people in that category that still have, by the way, have a lot of college debt on their books and on their shoulders, they're wondering if they'll ever be able to buy a home, you know, live the American dream at some point. Yes, but we've got to be more optimistic. We'll see how we work through it. We need those experts like you. Uh, Susan, we'll see you Thank soon. You. All right, get well. Thank you. You got it, one 408 7669 I'll come back. It'll take you calls. You can write me, briankillme.com. You can, it'll go right. Just hit or click on comments. It'll come right to me. You listen to Brian Kill Me Show. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmead. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Patrick, Martin Brando, Formula One Television in England. Yeah, I don't think you can hear me up there. Patrick, how are you? Good, good to see you on the grid here. What do you think of this atmosphere? This is crazy. I've never been to an F1 race. This is, this is spectacular. It's amazing to be allowed right in the middle of the competitors just before the race starts. Yeah, now you can see they're locked in. It reminds me of myself. But uh, the real focus. Okay, it's not Patrick. That's why he ignored me in the beginning. But what is your name, sir? Paolo Bancaro. Right, okay. Well, I thought I was talking to somebody else. So I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> oh, oh, that's the worst. Has that ever happened to you? Maybe not live on TV. I'm trying to think. I don't. I, I know. I, I told you with the, with Daughtry, the singer on American Idol. 
I don't remember that so, story. So remember Daughtry, right? Yes. I mean, so Chris Daughtry. So he was great. And, you know, I was covering American Idol when it was the number one show. And they go, Brian, you want to go out there? So he did like four straight seasons. So he uh, ends up meeting with Creed. That was the group that he patterned himself after. And he's all emotional after being there. I started talking to him. And I said, you know, what's it like playing? It's great. And I go, what's it like? Um, what's it like having your mom see it? And he said, that's my wife. <laughs> Oops. That was terrible. That's pretty bad. I mean, I feel like not quite as bad as this, but yeah, that's. <laughs> yeah, well. I mean, he could have been like my mom passed away. That would have been more uncomfortable. That would have been worse. But I remember, I think Bob Costas did that with Michael Jordan. Uh-huh. And he said, what about your mom here? It's like, that's his wife. Yeah. Yes, that's tough. It's a little painful. But to inform our audience, that was Sky Sports, uh, Martin Brundle. And he was chasing after who he thought was Patrick Mahomes, but it was really um, a Duke player, uh, Paolo Banchero. Yeah, uh, Banchero, who figured to be the most uh, one of the fir- few picks in this year's NBA draft. So he was able to roll with it uh, like a Duke guy. But it's not a big deal. It's like, for example, if I screwed up the name of a cricket player, who, and if I'm in the U.S. and there's a great cricket player... And I screw up his name. There's really no hell to pay. In the UK, they're not going to care, right? I don't think. I think it was being simulcast on a US channel, but maybe not. But um, I mean, I don't think there's going to be hell to pay. And if anything, there's more. Oh, I was on an ABC simulcast. It was. Oh, no, no. But um, but I mean, they were also what at a NASCAR event, right? Or the FS1 in Miami. It was a car racing event. So also, oh yeah, it was a Formula One in Miami. It was yep. historic, evidently. But let's find out if there's even more to know. More to know. So get this, being that Mother's Day, let's have a Mother's Day theme. Mothers spend an average of 97 hours a week on parenting tasks, equivalent to a six-figure job. That according to the uh, survey of 2,000 moms raising school-aged children aged 5 to 18. Uh, even, even if it means sacrificing sleep and time, the poll commissioned by Campbell's Soup found no fewer than 15 different hats a mom wears from chef to financial planner, more than half of those surveyed reported sacrificing everything for their kids, while 47% uh, uh, regularly give up date nights, hobbies, time with friends. Can you relate to that at all? I can definitely relate to that. I feel like 97 hours sounds like a lot to me, but I also work and have someone taking care of my kids while I'm here. Sometimes. <laughs> um, but sometimes you got to do both at the same time. Uh, in a typical day, moms say they spend 46 minutes preparing meals, 44 minutes doing their laundry, 29 minutes creating art, creating artwork and drawings. Would it really? And at that time, uh, it's spent a chauffeur, cheerleader, tutor, and therapist. So it's a lot of time. It is a lot of time. I will say that. <laughs> Next, a Kuwaiti climber earned a Guinness Book of World Records when he completed his goal of climbing seven volcanic, volcanic, summ- volcanic summits at the age of 24 years old. Uh, and 119 days. His name is Al Reefy. He was awarded the record for youngest person to climb seven summits after he successfully climbed Mount Sidley in Antarctica. Uh, quote, when I first asked my mom for the Guinness Book of World Records as a kid, she told me she would only buy it if I had something amazing to make my way into it. I really don't know if she meant it that time, but there we are living the dream. Isn't Kuwait mostly flat? So this is really amazing. He really had to travel. He did. I mean, I wonder what made him pick this as his way to get into the uh, the book. Like, did he always like to hike, or did they think this is an easier one? Well, wow, that's a great follow-up question to a Kuwaiti climber. <laughs> too bad you're not a Kuwaiti climber today. Right. I, too bad I don't <laughs> even have one on the line. It's true. To even, like, to practice with that question. Next, the average consumer cutting three streaming services from their lineup. This is big. 
There's, they did a survey about 2,000 people. They say 57% are planning to cut some of their paid streaming subscriptions. So they're cutting cable and cutting streaming. What is everyone doing? We're not talking to each other. What are we doing? Texting? Are we playing board games? Not board games. Are we playing video games? There's video games, but I think, I mean, you realize there's only, there's certain streaming services you tend to watch a lot more. So it's like, why pay for this one that I, you know, downloaded for this one series? Let me cancel it. And if they have something good, I'll re-up. The survey found that 7 in 10 cited changes to their financial situation as a reason to reevaluate streaming. 44% would stick with an unsatisfying streaming service for only a week before canceling it. What would keep people loyal to a service? Affordability, 45%. Content, 44%. And a friendly interface, 43%. That's me. I'm always hitting a roadblock. There's always something that happens where I'm like, there's nothing logical here. That's, that's so unusual, you not agreeing with technology. But, but we got to get past the password thing. We, I'm so tired of the password. I want to give up all my security just to get rid of passports. Just make Password. everything Brian is the best. Right. Just make that it? Yes. But then, no of course, some will say that doesn't work already. You need an exclamation point. You need a hieroglyphic in there. You know what I'm saying? From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hope you had a great Mother's Day weekend. We're coming to you from New York City. Heard around the country, heard around the world, especially in the Ukraine. Uh, We'll be taking your calls, but Alex Hogan is going to be with us at the bottom of the hour. Remember, Alex, she's been reporting from Slovakia, Poland, as well as Hungary, and then she went over to uh, Kiev and leave. Uh, so she's going to be giving us up close personal look at what's happening in that war. And then we got hours ago, Vladimir Putin did his uh, much sought after everyone listening to victory speech uh, celebration, and he was supposed to maybe talk about a change of policy, change of tactics, maybe more brutal in Ukraine. Turns out nothing really happened from there, but we'll talk about what goes from there. Also, uh, I was able to get a series of questions to one of the officers who is holed up right now in those iron mines in Mariupol. And now they got all the civilians out. And he is one of the uh, one of the Azov group, that elite fighting unit, along with about 100 Marines. They'll have to fight their way out of there. But before that, he was able to answer my questions on video. I'll play you some of the translation. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. They have nothing to celebrate tomorrow. They have uh, not succeeded in defeating the Ukrainians. They've not succeeded in dividing NATO. They have only succeeded in isolating themselves internationally. Wow. Uh, And that is the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations talking about Vladimir Putin's big speech. Pure fiction, as he says, and phony reasons for invading the war, says Ukraine had nuclear weapons. Really? No one believes it. We'll talk about the latest. Number two. For some truckers, diesel prices are becoming unbearable. This independent trucker says he's losing more money on the road. You know, the price is skyrocketing, and uh, we still don't get good prices, you know, for the loads. If, if it goes any higher than this, and prices for the load is not coming up, then maybe we just we'll, we'll call it a quit. And so many people seem to think that when you're paying $1,000 to fill up your tank in a diesel engine in a truck, if they, you're not going to make a profit, why would you drive? It doesn't make any sense. Biden continues to blame inflation on the Putin price hike. That just doesn't add up. Now we have uh, gas and oil going up big time. We'll talk about it. 
Number one. I'm unapologetically pro-life. I'm also unapologetically against mob rule. And the left has been attempting to intimidate the court with mob rule. The left has been attempting to intimidate the court by threatening to pack it, by threatening violence. Now we're seeing the violence. Uh, Yeah, that is Senator Bill Cassidy. The draft opinion that has rocked American politics spilled into churches in front of the homes of Supreme Court justices. The issue, the reality, and the party positions. Plus, we will uh, will also learn about the identity of the leaker. Do you think so? We'll speculate. Andy McCarthy joins us now. Uh, Andy, when I tell you there were protests this weekend, it was forecasted, it was telegraphed. uh, But it's still unacceptable to the degree in which you invade a church or you throw a Molotov cocktail into a pro-life center in Wisconsin. Don't you agree? Yeah, absolutely, Brian. There's no, uh, there's no doubt that this is being done uh, to intimidate the court. And it's being done more than to just intimidate the court. My view of this always, and I said this, uh, well, we've all said this in connection with a million different stories, but just in recent years going back to Kavanaugh, what I said at the time was, Kavanaugh is bad enough, but Kavanaugh is not about Kavanaugh. It's yes, they wanted to have him not get on the court, but also they do this kind of stuff for what we call in the law interorum purposes. Basically, they want to scare you um, from ever doing anything that would cross them. Uh, So this is in part about Roe versus Wade, uh, but it's also in part about warning the court and warning everybody else not to cross them. Unbelievable. So, you know, you have the White House condemning the attempts to intimidate uh, the pro-abortion protesters at Catholic churches. uh, But they're also knowing that they're going, they did not indict and say it's wrong to go in front of a Supreme Court justice's house and protest. And they're doing Alito today. They did Kavanaugh over the weekend. They did Roberts over the weekend. Is it illegal? It is illegal. I mean, it's it's first of all, there's a statute that's right on point. I know people say that there are First Amendment doubts about it, but uh, unless and until it gets uh, until the statute's held unconstitutional, which it never has been, there's a law in the books that says that it's that you can't do this directly. Um, I also think it's quite obvious that this is an obstruction of justice. You know, we we talk, Brian, about. Um, abortion as national policy, and it absolutely is national policy as as we debate it in the country. But as far as the Supreme Court is concerned, it's a litigation. It's a it's a it's a judicial case, the Dobbs case. And if you are uh, pressuring judges in a corrupt way in order to intimidate them or simply to influence the outcome of the case. That's obstruction of justice. I think it's a little harder for us to see, maybe, because the context that obstruction of justice usually comes up in is a trial court where, you know, you intimidate a witness or you intimidate a juror uh, or even intimidate the judge. But here what they're doing uh, is corrupting the process by which an appellate court resolves a case. And if a court of appeals, which is what the Supreme Court essentially is, uh, if they can't confidentially swap opinions so that they can debate and refine their final ruling. And if the justices have to be concerned for their own safety and the safety of their own families because people are trying to pressure them to uh, reach a particular outcome, that's obstruction. We should remember that the in our constitutional system, 
the courts are insulated from politics. The whole idea of our system is that judges are supposed to reach decisions on the basis of the law, not on the basis of political pressure. And what's going on on the front lawns of the justices is precisely mm -hmm. trying to put political pressure on them to reach an outcome regardless of what the law says. So what the Republicans have been saying, up until Mitch McConnell answered the question in USA Today, saying that, you know, we're not taking off the table, possibly outright banning uh, abortion if they get the majorities in the Senate and House, I guess supermajorities. But listen to what other people are saying. Well, this is just the beginning for Republicans. If they get this, they're not going to stop there. Dan Abrams on ABC, obviously he's their legal analyst, said this, cut 11. When you look at precedent, I think that the most important question moving forward after this case is going to be, what could be next? And I think that certainly uh, the gay marriage ruling is going to be on the table. Why? Because Justice Alito wrote a dissent in that case, which used almost the exact same reasoning as he's using in this case. And so I think it is entirely fair to ask, okay, could that be next? Could he have five votes for something like that? And of course, you would also need uh, states to outlaw it as well. Is that true? Do you find that we do analyze it the same way? I do. I think he, I think uh, Dan Abrams is right about that. Now, I wouldn't go as far as like the New York Times has gone and a number of people have gone, you know, the, the idiotic arguments that, uh, you know, the next thing they'll be banning LBT, you know, whatever it is, kids from the classroom and, and the like. Uh, that's nonsense. But I do think that if you have a right that the court has recognized under the doctrine that's known as substantive due process, and a case comes before the court, if Alito's opinion became the law of the land, um, what, what the opinion basically says is we are not going to recognize unenumerated rights, which are, are rights that are not spelled out in the Constitution, right? The Constitution in the Ninth Amendment says that just because we don't expressly recognize a right doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So it's a big uh, debate in the law about which unenumerated rights do we recognize. And the, the doctrine the court has used in this regard is called substantive due process, which is a largely discredited doctrine. What Alito does in the opinion is he basically says, we're going to recognize unenumerated rights, but they have to qualify, uh, they have to fill out two credentials. One is they have to be rights that are deeply rooted in American tradition and history, and secondly, they have to be implicit in a system of ordered liberty. Uh, and I don't think anybody could argue that gay marriage, whatever you think about it, is rooted in American history and tradition. So I thought Obergefell, just like Justice Alito thought Obergefell was wrongly decided, I think Obergefell was wrongly decided. So then the next question becomes stare decisis, which is this doctrine of do you respect um, uh, precedent or not, and it's a multi-part test. That that case has only been on the books for you know like five minutes, right? Um, so when they say you know, I think when the court makes in that Alito opinion, where the court says we're going to distinguish the abortion jurisprudence because fetal life is different, that the, you know what we're talking about here is different in kind than all those other rights. I thought that was the weakest part of the opinion, because I think if what the court is saying is we're going to live with a doctrine where we're not going to recognize rights unless they're deep, deeply rooted in American history and tradition, then that's got to be 
the test if you're arguing that something's an unenumerated right. So I do think that it's not frivolous for the left to contend that Obergefell could be challenged under this doctrine, because the way I look at it, it certainly could. To my mind, Brian, the thing is, what the court is saying is not that you that it would ban, let's say, gay marriage, just any more than it would ban abortion. The issue would be the court has no business gotcha. deciding these things. So it would go back to the states. And if you want to have gay marriage, if you want to have tri-marriage, if you want to have, you know, throuples or whatever, you know, that's up to the states. The, the Supreme Court, what the Supreme Court is basically saying is if it's not in the Constitution, it's for the Democratic process to work out. And I think most states in this country, if not all of them, would permit gay marriage. Right. Uh, but if that but when they come up and say that what about interracial marriage, is that a rooted? Is that a possibility? That, no, that's no, that's an equal protection. That's a different. See, this is why I say you have to look at what is the doctrine of law that was invoked in order to recognize the right. Equal protection is different. You can't you, you can't have racial classifications. Um, and, and that was the basis for those. So, the, the, you know, the idea that. Uh, that the Supreme Court is going to ban uh, interracial marriage. Or, Brian, I think about how preposterous this is, that somebody would bring a case to the Supreme Court complaining about interracial marriage in 2022? Really? You know. Uh, right. But no, I don't think that – that is a different doctrine of law, and I don't think that that uh, is at all at risk. So we, there's a report the Washington Post is running with it. they got more leaks. It says that nobody's budging on the Supreme Court, despite the protests and uproar. It was almost expected. If you were these, if, even though we're in unplowed ground, number one, how important is it for the legal system to find out who leaked this? Number two, why not pick up the pace? If everybody knows about it, why, why are we still waiting to the end of June? Well, number one, Brian, I think to answer your first question, it's crucially important that they – uh, identify who this leaker is and that the person be prosecuted. I think that uh, you have to show, if you want the court to continue as a viable uh, institution, a judicial institution, they have to be able to deliberate in, you know, confidentiality, uh, confidentially. If they can't, they can't function as an appellate court. So I think it's very important that there's accountability with respect to that and that it's treated seriously. I hope it will be. Um, you know, as for the rest of it, Brian, I, I think the only thing we know right now is what the court has confirmed, which is that uh, this was a draft opinion. It's an authentic one, and it was written by Justice Alito apparently for five uh, for a five-justice majority because it, it seems to be the opinion of the court. Uh, and anyone who listens to the oral argument or knows about the reporting about it, it can, can gauge what the, the tenor of the vote was. As far as what they – the rest of the reporting about, like – as of last week, the five still held strong, and I don't. I'm not. I'm not confident in any of that. I'm confident about the the opinion being authentic because the Supreme Court has confirmed it. You know, Chief Justice Roberts came out and said that last week. Uh, as far as the rest of the reporting is concerned, I think a lot of it mixes speculation with with what people may actually know. So I'm not putting a lot of credence into it. I do agree with you, and I've said this myself. Um, I think it's vital that they get this opinion out right away. I don't think they should wait until the end of June because I think, you know, when you tell people, including all the crazies out there, that this is not a binding opinion, it's just a a draft, that's true. But what you're telling all the crazies is 
So we haven't from now until it's fine until it's an official opinion to try to do whatever we can do to intimidate them into changing their minds. So I think you need to shorten that window and get this opinion out. And I think it's terrible that all nine justices, including the three progressives, have not come out in a full-throated way and condemned the leak. I think that's really shameful. It's it's just as bad as the as Biden not doing it. I hear you. It would just be so easy to say, be civil. You shouldn't be doing this. No one's going to want to serve on a human level. Forget, forget your specialty, which is the legal system. Uh, do I want to be a cabinet secretary, make less money more than likely in government, and, and, and have my family susceptible to decisions uh, a administration makes or that I make personally? Have the, an eight-year-old hear horrible things about their parent, which Amy Coney Barrett obviously has young family, and uh, Kavanaugh as well as a young family? I mean, to see this and or have to evacuate because you have you have a job in a government that people want to protest at your home. That's got it to me. That's got to stop. Uh, Andy, thanks so yeah. much. Thanks, Brian. Hey, uh, when we come back, I'll take your calls. one 866 Then we'll welcome Alex Hogan. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories. It's Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Senator, half of trans kids in this country, about sexual identity. Half of, ki- of trans kids in this country have contemplated suicide, and that's because of the effort to bully them for their identity by adults in this country. Senator. So I absolutely do think that there's a message sent to these kids when you when you suggest that a conversation about their identity um, is somehow threatening the education of kids in our schools. With your children, did you talk about sexual identity as a kindergarten? Kinder- Gardener, do you, I mean, you don't talk about the birds and the bees, let's lo- let alone the birds and the birds at that age, kindergarten through third grade. So, so there was an amendment in the Florida legislature to, to ban sexual education in the early ages. That amendment failed because this wasn't about trying to protect children from a discussion uh, about sex. This was a effort to specifically ban a conversation uh, about uh, topics related to sexual identity. What did he just say? He said, just not sex, sexual identity. So just identify, well, what does that mean? What's your sexual identity? So I thought Brett was brilliant because Senator Murphy is just saying the Democratic talking points went to bulldoze through. But what he's saying is totally wrong. So he says, oh, and they're not talking about sex, talking about sexual identity. They're talking about both. And you can't talk about sexual identity and not talk about sex. It's almost impossible. And just keep it out. And K through three, I thought, you know what? I think it's defensible, K through five, K through six. Uh, you know, just let's keep it, you know, make that for junior high school age, seventh, eighth, and ninth. But K through third is really tame. I mean, this, you can't really even argue that. No, and don't you want maybe like your second or third grader to think of identity differently? Like, you know, what are you smart at? You're really good at math. You're good yeah. at reading. You're artistic. You're a singer. Why does it have to be who you want to sleep with? That brings back to the sex. Can you talk about sexual identity and not talk about sex? Yeah. Which no. I'm not even comfortable talking about it now. I and know I'm, you're I'm uncomfortable. I'm past the third grade. <laughs> of course DeSantis is right. And po- of course you agree with that he's right. Even if you don't even like DeSantis, you know he's correct on this. And Murphy way off. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I wanted to come on Mother's Day. I thought it was important 
to show the Ukrainian people that this war has to stop. And this war has been brutal. And that the people of the United States stand with the people of Ukraine. Know it. You feel it. And that is uh, Jill Biden, the first lady, uh, going into Ukraine. I think she started in Poland, went into Ukraine, and then met the first lady of Ms. Zelensky, the first lady of uh, of Ukraine. At a time in which they're still at war, and you know there is a, there is definitely danger there. Alex Hogan knows all about it. She has spent weeks there uh, uh, in some of the Ukrainian allies with uh, in Poland, in Slovakia, and in Hungary, and then over the Ukraine itself. Alex Hogan's Fox News correspondent is back stateside for a day, right? <laughs> Just Two days, about a dig and a half. Hi, Brian. And then you Thanks go back to London, me. and we go back to London. So uh, first off, if you would recount what you saw, first, your first uh, first stop was Poland, right? Mm-hmm. And we started in Poland, and then we moved to Slovakia, then to Hungary, and then Romania. And we were on the road for about three and a half weeks, literally on the road, not flying. No, not flying. So we drove, and when we turned around and then went back to Poland to go into Ukraine, that was about a 16-hour drive. So just showing you how long these borders are, this is a massive part of the world, and really everywhere we went, there were more refugees coming across to the point that now millions of people, more than 5 million people have fled Ukraine, and that number is not slowing down. And we watch your reports, we watch interview a lot of people. What was your takeaway uh, you were just telling me in the break is that when people were giving handouts to the Ukrainians, they did not feel comfortable getting them, right? No, not Their mindset always. was, wait a second, I have money, I have means. Yeah, and, and put yourself in, in their shoes for anyone who might be listening. You might never have received something for free, a donation. While you might want to give a donation, it would be difficult emotionally, psychologically to accept a free jacket when you could very well pay for that own jacket mm. at home, but you're leaving carrying nothing with you, bringing just a backpack. So, you know, there's a big question now. You know, we kept making our intelligence public, saying, listen, the Russians now have 150,000 mm-hmm. troops on the border. Uh, the Russians, we fully expect them to go in. And Zelensky would make statements where, well, if you expect them to go in, um, why don't, you know, why not come, why don't you give me more weapons if you expect them to come in? It's almost as if Zelensky wasn't being read into the intelligence. When you, with, when, the, when the invasion happened February 24th, what proportion of the people that you met we're expecting it. Even the weeks after, people still could not believe that it was taking place. But in the moment, no one that I spoke with thought that this invasion actually would happen regardless of the intelligence that we had. They genuinely thought that this was just an escalation, but that nothing would actually come to fruition, especially because of the relationships that so many Ukrainians have, that they have friends across the border, they have loved ones, they have family members, and they themselves feel this personal tie to the culture that is in Russia. So here's what I find confusing. They overthrew a hand-picked Russian stooge as leader back in in the 90s. And then they have a couple of elections, tumultuous people pointed out the unevenness of their democracy. But they were picking their own leaders. No question. Russia doesn't. So didn't they, and they looked, every time you talk to them, they're looking towards the European Union. They look west, not east. Why were they... Why were they so shocked? Yeah, why were they so shocked? Well, I think even though Ukraine has been trying to get into NATO and leaning on the EU, there's still such a deep-seated cultural tie between Russia and Ukraine. The language is very similar. So even though people speak Ukrainian, they understand Russian. And there's just a lot of similarities in the way people 
act, in the kinds of food that they eat. And that says so much about someone's personal identity. So they said in a lot of conversations that came up that they felt that they would have been less surprised and less offended if it had been another country invading them. But the fact that it was Russia, they felt like Russia was their so quote unquote brothers, so to speak. So you said there's 5.8 million people Mm. that have left the country or just displaced from their town. So 5.8 million people have left the country. In the country itself, 7.7 million people are homeless at this point, and 13 million people are currently living in a city that's either been surrounded or there's not enough food and resources. So that's that's almost two-thirds of the entire country's population disrupted or out of their home. And now they leave is, uh, is relatively okay. You said they get bombed once a week. Uh, Kiev is, is uh, starting to rebuild, they say, mm-hmm. already. Are people heading back? They are. So when I was there, we left about a couple weeks ago. People were starting to head back, especially for people who had been gone for a couple months now. there's no supplies. There's no supplies. So it's this risk. Do I continue to live somewhere else where I don't speak the language, I don't have any way of supporting myself because I can't get a job very easily unless you're lucky and you happen to have the resources. Mm -hmm. But they're deciding to head back because it's safer than it was And everything feels relative for them. So people have become used to living in a city where they're hearing sirens multiple times a day, which is something that's unfathomable for most people here. And uh, when when people saw you Mm -hmm. and they found out you were American, was that a good thing or a bad thing? So we didn't have a lot of negativity. If anything, people just wanted to tell their story. story. They just wanted people around the world, especially here in the U.S., they wanted people to understand how much their lives had changed just in a matter of 10 weeks. Wow. I want you to hear, so how is this going to end is the bigger question. Yeah. And you hear about the war grinding on, and we watch cities being leveled, but it looks like the Russians also don't have an infinite amount of arms, weapons, and people, right? So here's what Lindsey Graham said. This is the moment that we should double down. Cut 28. So you're saying that that's how this ends, that Putin is removed? Uh, Is there any way? There's no off-ramp. There is no off-ramp. No off-ramp. So let me tell you why there's no off-ramp. The Ukrainians are not going to give the East to Putin uh, to to stop the war. They're going to fight for every inch of their territory. If we push the Ukrainians to give up half the country, then Putin wins. If we back off prosecuting Putin as a war criminal, all the laws on the books become a joke. If we don't get this right, China will certainly invade Taiwan. There is no off-ramp in this war. Somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose. Now, I know how it's interpreted here. A lot of people in this country are not happy with Lindsey Graham's comments saying, wait a second, it's not our war and it's not our job to make sure that he's diminished, although it's to our advantage. How does a statement like that resonate in Eastern Europe? I think there's there's so much skepticism when people in Ukraine hear political leaders in other parts of the world talking about what's taking place on their territory, in their backyard, in their homes. They sometimes see them as empty words. They don't actually believe in any of it from the conversations I've had with people because they're living this. They're fleeing their homes. So as much as they'd hope to believe that there could be Mm -hmm. the political backing of world leaders, for the most part, the conversations I've had with people, they just genuinely don't believe that help is coming until they see it with their own eyes. So interesting, too, because I understand Ukraine, like us, Mm -hmm. uh, very polarized. Like Klitschko's don't really talk to Zelensky. He's an Emmy. And Poshenko, who Clint Zelensky beat handily in an election, they're in separate parts of the country. They're not appearing together. They're not going at each other. But internally, there's legitimate rivalries in Ukraine. There is. But I will say there is such a support around Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. Pretty much everyone I talked with he said— He earned it to me. That he, he was a sense of pride for them, that if they— 
felt confused or they felt fearful that he was he was an image of courage for people especially given the fact that he stayed his family stayed he didn't see his wife for about a month because he wanted to make sure that his family was safe and that was a sign of courage for people who were also choosing to leave their families how many weeks were you there about six and a half. Uh, Alex Hogan was here right when they was in, at the war, in the war zone, from fe- almost for February 24th, really? Got there beginning of March. Yeah, and beginning then of March. we left about two weeks ago. Yeah, it's incredible. And, do, and you've seen her all over television. You've seen her great work. And you're so composed under pressure. And you see this human anguish. And the, what you did is just fantastic. Well, thank you. Uh, and now you got to go back to London tomorrow. Going back to London. So uh, Zelensky is, did a brilliant move. And I think they'll look back and they'll say there's only very few people that can do it because he's got that that showmanship in him i'm going to address all the parliaments i'm going to address the i'm going to address the ukrainian people and address the world and mm-hmm. show them i'm not going anywhere and i contrast it with maybe he didn't with what we just saw with ghani so there's an invasion there the taliban are on the march don't worry they got plenty of arms and they're going to fight mm-hmm. for a while and this thing's going to last ghani left on the first chopper out and then they offer him a ride out in 48 hours and the reason why i know it's yeah. true is because our intelligence is honest they said 72 hours, Kiev will fall. So they want to make sure this guy didn't die. But, and he's like, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, he's I, not I'm, leaving. I'm wondering how the situation might have been different if he goes, yeah, I'm, I'm leaving. Yeah, and I wonder if the exodus might have been much more of people trying to flee as well, where there were a lot of people who were Probably these Probably taking holdouts. the capital, put, a, put exactly. another government in there. Yeah, and people who wanted to stay. And even now, today uh, is the victory day, so to speak, in Russia. And Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky spoke out today saying that he is going to stand by and continue to fight. And I think that continued resilience and those continued comments, speaking every single night to his country, really has shifted the morale within Ukraine. Right. Uh, I want you to hear what Dan Hoffman said. As you know, he's a CIA station chief in Moscow for years. He's been everywhere our, our, in Iraq as well. Uh, he's our guy. Uh, here's his analysis of what he hears from Putin. Cut 29. Vladimir Putin, according to, to Director CIA Burns over the weekend, he said Putin is going to double down. This is Putin's war. He can't afford to lose it. And sadly, that means that we may be uh, looking at just even more uh, violence uh, and, and the Russian military raining down more hell on, on Ukraine's innocent civilians until they decide that, that it's time to stop. And, and I would emphasize that the military assistance the United States is providing and our NATO allies as well, keeping Ukraine in the fight, that's what we need to do uh, in order to stop Russia's war machine. Yeah, so he looks like he's doubling and tripling down because he can't lose. Yeah. I mean, think about, and I know you do, mm-hmm. I mean, he had success in Syria, Assad stays in power, he had success, took Crimea, no problem, stayed in Georgia, went invaded, hasn't left yet, then he takes most of the Donbass region, so I think I'll just, I'm on a roll, people are afraid of us, I got this great military, yeah. and now he can't really wrap his head around the fact that he's losing, and the, at the very least, his personal profile is diminished, and the Russian reputation is destroyed. And there was a lot of fear and anxiety over what could take place on May 9th and if this would be an escalation even more, if Russia would double down. And thankfully, we haven't seen any of those military moves today. There was the attack on a school. Uh, it was a school facility over the weekend in the Luhansk region, and yeah. about 60 people are believed to be dead. But that being said, for weeks on end leading up to this May 9th date, there had been so much concern that things would take a shift for the worse. And we haven't seen that so far. So that is a positive sign right. for people in Ukraine. At because least. they say one of the one moves he has is he could just mobilize the entire country and, and just uh, go ahead. There's going to be a draft. And they said, OK, now let's break that down. 
there's no these people have no experience, mm-hmm. and their commanders have no experience. So you have to train the trainers to train the people. Exactly. How how long is that going to take? And what are you going to do with rookie uh, uh, with uh, with people an army with absolutely no battlefield experience? What's going to happen in the interim? Yeah, there's not enough resources to train everyone. One thing that I thought was interesting in Ukraine, we're seeing this mass exodus of women and children. The men are staying behind to fight, and it is a sense of pride to be able to defend their country after this invasion. But so many people tried to enlist and go fight that they had too many Ukrainian volunteers who were trying to fight. So in places like Lviv on the western side of the country, you'll walk around the streets and you'll see so many men. And I think people might be surprised by that, thinking, well, shouldn't they be off fighting? But they have more than enough soldiers at this point that there's just not enough resources to train them because everyone who is trained is fighting. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be pride to know that Ukrainian is synonymous with strength and determination. Uh, that is a great reputation to have because they're they're winning on all fronts, um, and because it was so easy when they waltzed into Crimea. But a lot has changed since 2014. I want you to hear this one soundbite, and I know I played this with you this morning. This Captain Bogdan Krotovich is somebody who's right now in the catacombs of the steel mine in Mariupol. They've luckily, since he cut this tape for us, uh, they have let all the civilians out. But his unit, the Azov, uh, the Azov battalion, and a hundred Marines are still ready to fight to try to hold on to Mariupol. And they asked me for questions to submit to him, and he answered on video. And this is the translation. Uh, this is him talking about the perceptions of what the Russians why, what the Russians say to him after they get captured in battle. Cut 31. We have lots of interceptions when commanders would tell their seniors that soldiers don't want to fight. Then, seniors would give the permission to kill those who were unwilling in order to motivate the others to be cannon fodder. To the question of why they came to Ukrainian land, Russians just say, of course, that they didn't know where they were going, why this war is happening, the power that should change in Russia, etc. We still have several war prisoners who we offer to trade, but the Russian Federation isn't interested in trading for them. I'm sure, that's not the first time you heard that the Russians didn't know what they were fighting for. Yeah, and just like we talked about originally at the beginning about how Ukrainians have this existential crisis of hating Russia's invasion, but also having loved ones or having their personal identity be part Russian, part Ukrainian. Same thing for these Russian troops. A lot of them have family members in Ukraine. So this is the last thing that they wanted to do for some of them. But unfortunately, leaving isn't always an option. And we've seen videos of Russian troops surrendering and crying with Ukrainian people and they had no desire to do this, but unfortunately, they were either in it and there's no way for them to leave. All right, so Alex, when are you going back? That's the question. We have a lot of stories coming up in London, so maybe within the next month I'll be back over there. you got there. a big jubilee, right? Big jubilee. Up, the Queen. That's right, the Queen's And the controversy 70th. with Harry yes, and everything exactly. like that. exactly. So the jubilee is 70 years on the throne, which is amazing. amazing to think that she's been sitting in the same job, not just 70 years old, but she's been sitting on the throne for 70 years. And there's that much personal growth when you're queen already. Yeah. I mean, you can see, <laughs> it's how you can become king. Uh, Alex, thanks so much for coming in. And again, everybody was in awe of of the work you did. And I'm sure the best is yet to come. I appreciate your time. Thank you. I will. I will. You too. Uh, Brian Kilmichel, back to wrap up the hour in just a moment. Don't move. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame announced that Dolly Parton would be inducted this year, along with Eminem, Lionel Richie, and Carly Simon. Which begs the question, what is rock and roll? 
Qantas has announced plans for a new direct flight from New York to Australia that will take 19 hours. Not to be outdone, Spirit Airlines announced a new flight from New York to Philadelphia that will also take 19 hours. That is uh, true. Uh, There's a lot of airlines that are struggling. I hesitate to blame them because a lot of great people work there. But as I looked up on the, I was just so glad I was on Delta this weekend because as I looked up at the board, that same airline that we know that's been giving us problems before, that is even extra leg room, canceled, canceled. Just no really? explanation. And it was no, there was no weather issue. There was some rain in New York, but they could fly in rain. And then I looked up, canceled New York, canceled over well, the city in, in Nashville. And that's just crazy. And I've seen some famous people lose their temper uh, because of that, because there's no explanation. They can't get pilots. I don't know what it is. It's this this. The shortage, for example, whoever predicted baby, we'd be at a baby formula out, right? Whoever predicted we'd be at a pilot out. And, you know, we're hearing stories about airport workers. I will say one thing is good. They're not enforcing that mask mandate anywhere. So I know JFK and LaGuardia and maybe Newark, they're supposed to wear masks. Nobody's saying a word. Well, that's good. But I... I mean, now I feel like now we can say it. Even when we were traveling with the book tour, there were times, you know, we'd be walking around airports when it was still being enforced. Oh, and, and oh mean, yeah, no one would true. really say anything. Yeah, nobody would. No, yeah, because no one really owns the airport. No. And so, you know, if I'm, you're walking by, you're going to uh, a shop, or you're walking up the middle, no one really owns it. But once you got on, they were militant about Most it. Most of them, yes, they were. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so listen, uh, we'll have to discuss tomorrow. I'm going to get you more of this interview we, we had with this officer in the Ukrainian army, who's been under the catacombs of the steel mill for five weeks, uh, fighting. Uh, they said they killed 2,500 Russians. Uh, there's about, there's about uh, thousands of dead civilians in Mariupol, but they're not going to let up. They said they will die fighting. And he cut the tape. He, he asked me for questions, so I gave him questions. He answered on video, and they cut the tape on May 6th. So really in the eye of the storm. So I look forward to that and some great guests. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Keep it here. Don't forget the podcast, BrianKilmeadeShow.com. You can go to Spotify or anywhere else and just order it. Listen whenever you want. The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.